Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Hello everyone and thank you so much for joining me once again. Last week we had a quick whistle-stop tour of some Bach and a little look at the Baroque period. I thought I'd move things on by a few hundred years this time and delve into the 19th century to explore some Romantic music. Just like the Baroque era, the Romantic period in music was closely linked to the wider concept of Romanticism, a movement of art, literature and intellect that became prominent in Europe from around 1830 to 1900. Musically, the Romantic era is known for its intense energy and passion. Compositions became increasingly inventive and expressive. Whilst the classical period had already evolved from its Baroque neighbour in its writing style, by becoming elegant and balanced and incorporating a greater contrast in each piece, relating to key, tempo, timbre and mood. The Romantic period took this to the next level. Composers were writing expansive symphonies, dramatic operas, passionate songs and virtuosic piano music too, all of which took inspiration from art and literature. One organism which evolved significantly during this time was the orchestra. In the classical period, the orchestra had already grown in size from the 10 Baroque musicians to somewhere between 30 and 60 players. Classical composers exploited the individual tone colours of the instruments, with each section of the orchestra playing a different role. The strings were viewed as the most important section, with the first violins usually taking the melody and the lower strings providing an accompaniment. The woodwinds added contrasting tone colours and were often given melodic solos. Horns and trumpets brought power to loud passages and filled out the harmony, and the timpani were used for rhythmic bite and emphasis. This was already a huge step up from the Baroque orchestra setup, where strings and wind usually doubled melodies and the woodwind and brass sustained the harmony amongst a few solos too. However, the movement of Romanticism took the classical ideas to the next level. As a style, it evolved and built on what had already been established, but also went further in the name of expression. It followed a path that led to the expansion of formal compositional structures, and the end result is that the pieces are understood to be more passionate and expressive. The orchestra was expanded to up to a hundred players, featuring a greater use of brass and even piano. As well as an increase in size, the capabilities of the instruments used were changing due to developments in instrument making. For example, by the mid 19th century, brass instruments had the addition of valves. This made the option of composing in more difficult keys, containing many sharps or flats possible which was important, as the boundaries of tonality were being increasingly stretched. 
the pair of French horns suddenly expanded to a quartet, or even an octet, adding a whole new colour to the composer's ever-increasing palette. We also have the addition of the stratospheric piccolo and the deep contrabassoon, both providing extra octaves in the texture. The violin sections increased hugely in size, up to 20 players in both the first and second violins respectively. Composers therefore had the option of splitting these sections up to make smaller subsections, to provide huge dynamic contrasts and differences in texture. Let's also not forget the introduction of the harp as well as a vastly expanding percussion section too. Composers started making use of even more radical special effects, such as soltasto, where the strings play over the fingerboard, giving a hazy, less focused sound, sol ponticello, where the bow is put very close to the bridge, creating a glassy, eerie effect, and also the use of mutes too, little wooden clips which fitted on the bridge, creating a warm, rather muffled sound. With all of these gradual but momentous changes at their fingertips, it is no wonder that Romantic composers were able to push the boundaries of composition. The combinations of possible sounds and textures that could be created through blending instrumental groups became almost limitless, allowing them to create complete sound worlds never heard before. This in turn allowed the composers of the time to write with their hearts on their sleeves expressing their deepest feelings, giving rise to some of the most wonderful music ever written. Although many instruments in the orchestral family were developing rapidly, one constant was the continued use of gut strings in the string section. As I mentioned in my last episode, in the Baroque period, violins, violas, cellos and double basses were strung with strings made of cow or sheep gut. These were still used in the Romantic era, but with some slight alterations to evolve the string instruments. The violins saw the introduction of the chin rest, and consequently the shoulder rest, as fashion changed and ruffs and neck froth diminished. The cellos saw the development of the end pin, which we now call a spike, a wooden structure which was screwed into the bottom of the cello, supporting it and therefore allowing the player to move freely around the instrument and to tackle the technical challenges which romantic composers were beginning to impose. Much like the chin rest and shoulder rest, the end pin was a facilitator to all players, allowing them to explore the scope of their instruments to the max. The first metal violin E-string appeared in 1910, but didn't become prominent until the end of the Second World War when sheep gut became scarce. Similarly, the use of aluminium to cover gut D strings can be traced back to the end of the Second World War too. The last of the strings to transition was the A, with a pure gut string being commonly used until the advent of synthetic strings in the 1970s. Many of the historically informed ensembles that I work with are passionate about recreating the orchestral setup as it would have been in the Romantic era. In the Orchestre Révolutionnaire et Romantique, we all play on original Romantic instruments and bows, or at least copies of them. The string sections use gut strings, 
and the sound that the ensemble makes as a whole is incredibly warm and rich. Having played in modern orchestras on steel strings, as exciting as that is, the palette is extremely bright. With the historical instruments, you can really push the instruments to their breaking point in terms of dynamic and timbre. It is this which creates the beautiful, varied and complex sound worlds which the composers in the Romantic period must have had access to. In some upcoming episodes, I shall be speaking to a variety of historically informed musicians about their approach to a musical interpretation and also views on the development of their instruments and the orchestral world as a whole. But now, we must touch on another instrument, the voice. As you can imagine, along with the development of almost every instrument under the sun during the Baroque, Classical and Romantic eras, the use of the voice and indeed the genres in which it was utilised also evolved. In the Baroque period, it was Italian opera which was a dominant force and came to the fore in wealthy courts across Europe. Features of these early operas included a simple plot, the use of a small group of instruments and choruses, and of course, a happy ending. It was Christoph Willibald Gluck who took opera in new directions in the mid-1700s. He expanded the structure, narrative and harmony and also made the newly developing orchestra much more integral throughout. He introduced a technique called restativo accompagnato, which was a new style of recit. Restative is a style of delivery in which the singer is able to bend and adapt the rhythms written out by the composer to become more free, thus imitating ordinary speech. It mirrors the action of spoken language and was a technique used throughout opera in the Baroque and Classical period, which allowed the plot to progress slightly more fluidly than constantly getting stuck into arias where singers usually repeat what they are saying or singing again and again and again. In the Baroque period, these recitatives were usually accompanied by just a basso continuo group, harpsichord, lute and a cello. However, it was Gluck who developed this into recitative accompagnato, meaning that the recit was actually supported by the full orchestra. Having a backdrop of strings and sometimes wind when delivering a story in this fashion allowed for the creation of a variety of atmospheres, thus building up tension and excitement when needed throughout the plot. With this new style of writing and with greater forces at their disposal, composers were able to add more characters, thus making their plots more exciting and extravagant. The introduction of comic characters in Italian opera, or opera buffa, was a nod towards the everyday man and opera that he could relate to more easily. Whereas opera seria was an entertainment that was both made for and depicted nobility, Opera buffa was made for and depicted common people with more common problems. Highbrow language was generally avoided in favour of dialogue that the lower classes could relate to, often in the local dialect. But this is just one style of writing. As a genre, opera became steadily more international and varied in style. A real mix of Italian opera seria with German singspiel and French comique too. As well as his introduction of recitative accompagnato, 
Gluck strove to reform opera in a way that stripped back the extravagant writing created in Mozart's time, where the lead female or male singer was often the star of the show, with virtuosic and embellished melodic lines. It was this use of spectacle that was seen to be a replacement of dramatic purity. Gluck advocated that opera should return back to basics and that the components, music, ballet and staging, must be subservient to the overriding drama. This is evident in his first reform opera, Orfeo ed Eurydice, where his beautiful vocal melodies are supported by simple harmonies, resulting in a richer orchestra presence throughout, none of which overpowered the drama or the plot. Gluck's Orfeo ed Eurydice is one of his most popular works and is based on the myth of Orpheus. The plot tells of Orpheus's journey to the underworld to rescue his wife Eurydice. In mythology, Orpheus is known for his power to use his remarkable musical skills to charm gods, tame wild beasts, and even turn rocks into dance. The piece was premiered in Vienna in 1762, but was actually adapted 12 years later by Gluck to suit the tastes of the refined Parisian audience. The opera opens solemnly with a group of shepherds and Orfeo surrounding Eurydice's tomb. He will do anything to get her back from the underworld. Amongst this grief, Amore, or Cupid, appears telling Orfeo that he is able to go to the underworld to rescue his wife on the condition that he is not allowed to look at her before they arrive back on earth. I won't bore you with the whole plot now, but the journey takes Orfeo through the underworld where he encounters the Furies and Cerberus. Once he's tackled these, with the use of his lyre, he ends up in Elysium. It is here where the well-known and celebrated Dance of the Blessed Spirits is found. I was lucky enough to perform this opera with the English Baroque soloists and Sir John Eliot Gardner at the Royal Opera House several years ago. I remember this scene to be one of serenity and utter beauty. We collaborated with the hugely talented Hoffer Schechter Dance Company, who encapsulated the ethereal fairies, spirits and nymphs so beautifully through movement. It was over this which the melody soared. The dance of the Blessed Spirits is in two parts. The first is a pastoral air. Gluck uses the flutes, simple harmony and lilting melody to flow on top of an accompaniment in thirds, in the idealised pastoral key of F major. All of these were components to instil a gentle, rural calm. This minuet is then followed by a middle section where a beautiful flute melody is laid over a flowing string line, really allowing the melody to shine on top. This is then followed by the return of the minuet. Now, unfortunately, I don't have a full orchestra at my disposal, nor do I play the flute. But luckily for me, I do have a piano accompaniment, and this movement actually works beautifully on the violin too. So, here you are, my rendition of the middle section of Dance of the Blessed Spirits from Gluck's 1762 opera, Orfeo ed Eurydice.
The next work we are going to discuss is from Jules Massenet's famous opera, Thais. We've already touched on how the genre of opera evolved from the Baroque into the classical period. However, it is in the Romantic era where real strides in opera were made. The combination of music and drama, along with the expression of strong feelings and passions, such as love or death, really made it the golden age of opera. It remained the most prestigious musical genre in France, second to Italy, and was centred in Paris. Building on what Gluck had already established in the classical period, Massenet took French writing to the next level, which can be seen in his opera, Thais. The work is characterised by a mixture of sensuality and religion that underpins a dramatic structure which is based on opposites. For example, the city and the desert, seduction and renunciation, and eroticism and saintliness. When the work premiered in Paris in 1894, it aroused intense debate with critics not appreciating the subject matter, perhaps finding it too raunchy for the morals of the day. The complex plot is set in Egypt under the rule of the Roman Empire, where a monk tries to convert Thais, a courtesan, to Christianity. It turns out that his obsession with her is actually rooted in lust rather than religion, while in turn, the purity of Thais's heart is actually revealed. French romantic music is often distinctive for its particularly delicate qualities, and nowhere is this more evident than in this opera. The orchestral writing ensues the cohesion of each act by suggesting different atmospheres, dreams and meditations. This can be heard so beautifully in the captivating violin intermezzo, which is found between the scenes in Act Two of the opera. Meditation, or meditation, is a reflective, magical movement which instills a feeling of purity and innocence in the listener. The sweeping harps carry the soaring violin melody with ease cushioning it on dreamlike harmonies, leaving both performers and listeners in a meditative state. I shall now perform an opening extract of Thais's Meditation, which should hopefully help you all unwind. I am joined by my friend and colleague, Valeria Kurvatova on the harp.
we are now going to move through time swiftly by more than 50 years to have a look at a work by one of the major composers of the 20th century. He was a Russian composer and pianist, was famed for his unique harmonic language and wrote a great deal of his music under the rule of Stalin. Can you guess who I'm talking about? It is, of course, the remarkable Dmitry Shostakovich. Shostakovich had a large output with 15 symphonies for orchestra, 15 string quartets, many piano works, as well as three operas and ballets. But it's his role as a film composer which is of interest here. He was, in essence, the Russian John Williams of his day and wrote more than 30 film soundtracks. His interest in film was sparked when he was trying to make ends meet for his family. He spent the majority of his teenage years accompanying silent films on the pianos in St. Petersburg. It was actually only when his first symphony was hailed such a huge success in 1926 that he was actually able to stop playing at film theatres and to concentrate on composing instead. Due to his adolescent years surrounded by film, he was able to sense the importance and potential that music had in film, not only as a narrative tool, but as a powerful vector to express psychological, philosophical and spiritual subtleties. He used his expertise in classical and orchestral composition to write in a continuous style. For him, the film school was a cohesive entity, rather than just an amalgamation of cues stuck together. Our next work is taken from Shostakovich's 1955 film, The Gadfly, a Soviet historical drama. The story tells the tale of the struggling Italian patriots against the Austrian invaders for independence of their homeland. Despite this being rather a hefty plot, the film is actually rather a cheerful affair, a daring romantic adventure and costume drama depicting the life of an 1830s Italian hero. Due to its setting in Italy, Shostakovich moved away from his hybrid style of composition sharp contrasts, elements of the grotesque and shifting tonality, and drew on musical ideas borrowed from Italian Romantic composers such as Verdi and Bellini. Although the whole score is a cohesive suite, it is for the central romance that the score, and indeed the film, is famed for. The reason I'm drawing on this romance in The Gadfly is that it's unashamedly inspired by Thais's Meditation, which we have just heard. A graceful violin line soars over sweeping harp arpeggios. It is poised and yearning and is a real heart on your sleeve melody. As well as being the centre point of this film, the romance is a piece in its own right too. It was also used as a theme music for Euston's films, Riley, Ace of Spies, a mini-series about a Russian adventurer, Sidney Riley. So, it is time for me to bring you the romance from Shostakovich's Gadfly. I'm sure you'll be able to hear the romantic connections with Massenet's ties. And if not, it's just a really gorgeous piece. So I hope you enjoy it. I am performing this once again with Valeria. Thank you. 
so much for joining me for another episode of the classical corner i hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together in the meantime i wish you all a wonderful week goodbye